We had all of Indian Creek to ourselves. No one else was in the Super Bowl, which had a blanket of snow covering it. We were freezing cold in the morning, huddling by the fire. But by midday, when we were at the crag, we basted a solar oven. Maybe it was that contrast in the environment that has made this day stand out so much. Snow on the valley floor with a striking blue sky overhead. Or maybe it was the contrast in my mind state. Worry, worry, worry about what's going to happen in this new stage of life. And then being in the desert and not being worried about anything really, other than staying warm and staying safe. Whatever the reason, this memory shines through like a ray of sunshine in a dark canyon. Welcome to episode four of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, season two. I am Luke Mihaw. If you're listening by now, you know what's going on. If you're just finding this podcast, rewind to episode one because this entire season tells a story just like uh, season one did. It's always a trip to reread your own work. I did write this book about three years ago. And the thing that sticks by me is when I revisit some of my older work, you know, I'm like, oh, I can improve here and I can improve there. These last couple of books I've written, American Climber in the Desert, I really feel happy about the words and feel confident that I took the approach that I did to advocate for an area and call out things that I thought were unjust and unfair. Like um, rappers do, you can look back to rappers' early mixtapes and the rappers you really like, maybe you really like their mixtapes, but you can always see the progression in their work and I think my books of short stories leading into my full-length books um, show that contrast. And I'm, I'm glad I put out all my earlier stuff. And I'm really just saying this right now to encourage artists to put your work out there, even if you don't feel like it's going to be your best work. When your best work comes, you have your other stuff to compare and contrast it to. If you dig this podcast and you want to support the work of The Climbing Zine, check out that link in our show notes. It's got a discount code in there too, and it'll get you 20% off your, your purchase. And that is the number one way to support this podcast and to support the climbing zine. Let's get into episode four. I can vividly remember the horses, the crushed tent, and even the teeth marks on the carrots. I remember being at camp with Tim and Dave, but for the life of me, I don't remember what we were climbing or where we were climbing. Perhaps I was just lost at sea, or I suppose lost in the desert. Whatever I climbed is blended into time, my memory, a talus field, a castle that eventually becomes sand. It was this time that I was just as much of a hopeless romantic, a poet, as I was a climber. And everything I'm aware about myself now, I wasn't much aware of at the time. I was empty because in many ways I had ended up following the path of my heroes, who were cautionary tales. I was following Kerouac and Garcia down their philosophical rabbit hole, but why was I not following Dr. Martin Luther King? Kerouac had killed himself with alcohol, and Jerry killed himself with heroin and other drugs. In many ways, they had been devoured by the following they created. Kerouac couldn't handle the fame, neither could Jerry. King was the only hero of mine who had died a hero's death. In college, I'd pondered becoming an activist, but I never did. The lonely road to climbing was the only path I really followed. I wanted to be a writer, 
but I did not write much at all. The climbing community in the land housed me well. I was lonely, traveling from place to place, but when I arrived, I always had friends. Friends that were aware of the risk of climbing and danced with it, how I preferred to dance. I was doing little to honor my hero, Dr. King, but I think I was honoring Kerouac and Garcia by simply existing in this countercultural lifestyle and not being totally self-destructive. I was not part of the lame America, as Jerry put it. I did inherit white privilege, something I never gave one thought to then, but now as I contemplate it in these days, so much of it comes back to that. I didn't write much, but I did write, and I thought about writing all the time, which of course is nothing if you don't do something about it. I always knew I wanted to give something to the world. King, Kerouac, and Garcia all gave their lives in one way or another. King died like Jesus did. Kerouac died so sadly. Garcia was engulfed by heroin and the monster that had become the Grateful Dead. How would I die? And when I died, would anyone remember what I had given? I knew a few things there post-college, lost but attached to the climbing world. I knew I didn't want to die anytime soon. That may seem like common sense, but I also get the feeling that there are those who live their life so close to the edge, and they can become indifferent to when death takes them. This may be conscious or unconscious. I had been close to wanting to die when I was suicidal in 20. I had almost died a couple times after that when I was just learning to climb and wanting to live. I knew three things. I wanted to live, I wanted to climb, and I wanted to write. And I wanted to exist in all the Americas I grew to know. I wanted to live in King's dream of America, where we judge one another on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. I wanted to exist in that beatnik, fuck you, to conformity America. I wanted to live in that Grateful Dead America, from spending a night in Utah in a cave up in the hills, to the future is here, we are it, we are on our own. Plateauing on the Colorado Plateau was seemingly teaching me nothing. So I'd go back to the mountains, to the state of Colorado, when I got tired of it. I rarely wrote about the desert and found it to be a place between other places. Yosemite thrilled me more. The Black Canyon stirred up epics for breakfast. Joshua Tree seemed to be more of a place to call home than my backyard desert. Indian Creek and the desert were places I'd just be from time to time, infinite in their space. But the spirits rarely spoke to me, or perhaps I was just not listening. My life continued for a few years like this. In that space of time, I knew I'd never become an activist. Wars continued and I did not protest. Environmental injustice continued and I did not protest. Economic injustice continued and I did not protest. I did continue to write. I still wrote infrequently, but later when I had tendonitis in my elbows and wondered if climbing would still be a thing I'd do, I got a writing gig, a PR job at the college in Gunny. I learned the craft and I appreciated the craft. I became a total square and hardly visited the desert anymore. I figured my future was in writing and not in climbing. I lost my gig, partly due to the economic crash and partly due to the fact that I was burnt out on the nine to five life. They cut my job to half time, so I quit. Something about me was angry and upset, but there was this other part in me that was joyously singing on the inside. Kind of like in the movie Office Space, when the main character says fuck it, and things start going his way. This was right around when Obama got elected. 
I was fed up with George W. and his ignorant ways and wars, and I rejoiced when Obama became president. Soon after, though, I was unemployed and broke, and I realized when you're jobless and moneyless, it doesn't really matter who the damn president is. The end of this chapter in my life, the one I thought I would be happy writing in a 9-to-5, surrounded by walls, drove me closer to the desert, with absolutely no intention to be closer to the desert. I just wanted out. I moved from Gunnison to Durango on a whim, with nothing more than an editor from the local weekly telling me I could freelance for them. As any freelance writer knows, writing for a local indie paper ain't much good for the bank account, but it's good to know a community. That was my plan. It wasn't really a thought-out plan. It was more of an escape route. It was just two weeks into this move that I realized how much closer I was to Indian Creek, that old friend. It didn't take long for us to get reacquainted. I had changed. It had mostly remained the same, save for its ever-increasing popularity. I was back in the desert, and maybe, just maybe, I was ready to start listening to the desert. Alas, before we get on the rabbit hole of the desert, before the spirits start speaking, and before I paint my canvas, a few more influencers in my life and art are worth looking at. Ed Abbey is a good one to start with. Abbey was never a hero for me, and really only a small portion of his writing spoke to me. The writing that did, Desert Solitaire, well, that changed my life and good books have that power. Desert Solitaire is a simple book, written when Abby was a ranger in Arches National Park in the 1950s. It's a feisty tribute to loving the freedom and openness of the desert and lamenting any improvements that can make it easier for the mainstream tourists to access it. It's a beautiful book, poetry for hundreds of pages, a primer for loving a land that will never love you back. Like Kerouac's books, it's easy to criticize as boring, too simple, not enough action. But everything can be criticized, and those that critique can rarely create. Abby was an icon out west, a household name to those who loved the desert and felt a calling to protect it. He was long dead by the time I was in college, but his name carried a weight. Have you read Desert Solitaire? has been uttered by thousands upon thousands, and accompanied by a look. It says if you haven't read it, you ought to. George Sibley was our Ed Abbey over in Gunnison. He was my college professor and advisor to our student newspaper. George never gained the fame that Abbey did, but around town, he was regarded as highly as Abbey was nationally. He was an army dropout who settled in Crested Butte in a unique period of time when the hippies were coming in and the miners were still there. His writing of that era is some of my favorite writing of all time. He understood the complexities of the West and mountain town living. He loathed the lameness of mainstream America and wanted to live the rest of his days in the mountains. I loved Sibley's stories. So when he would praise my work in our newspaper meetings, my confidence for writing soared. I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up, but he helped me see that I would become a writer. Older writers and editors have such a power in their hands when they interact with young writers. A lot of that has been broken down now with so much self-publishing or independent publishing, as I like to call it. Self-publishing kind of sounds like masturbation to me. Like you couldn't get someone else to do it, so you do it yourself. Indie publishing kind of sounds like a fuck you to mainstream publishing. I'm going to do my own damn thing and be more successful than if I would have teamed up with you. George always lifted me up instead of bringing me down. Though my submissions were already heavily marked up with the basic grammatical errors because I never learned that stuff until later. 
Other editors would piss all over my work, as they used to say, and I'd hold a grudge against them for that. George would ground me with grammatical critique, but always let me soar as high as I wanted in creativity and joy. George once told me my work reminded him of Kerouac, which could have been a lie. Maybe he just wanted to encourage me. But the day he told me that was one of the most important days of my life. It meant I could live like Kerouac, wild and free on the open road. He also told me to let my writing really sing some of the best damn advice I'd ever gotten. Of course, Kerouac couldn't even live like Kerouac. It was an illusion. And later I'd learned he would write in these 20,000-word bursts fueled by speed. That kind of writing can't be good for the writer's heart or soul. But damn, it did provide some good stories. I guess one just wants their heroes to enjoy themselves. Later I'd learned that Kerouac had originally inspired Jerry Garcia. Inspiration can go a long way. Kerouac, Abby, and Sibley all held their own place in the hearts of their readers and their coffee tables. That space seemed just as sacred as the experiences and places they would write about. All held Mother Nature as the highest of high. I wanted to walk in their footsteps. My purpose was met with clarity when years down the road, after deciding to become a real writer, people told me my work influenced them. I wanted to make an impact in the world, and I'd failed in so many ways. All modern Americans are takers in one way or another, and the longer I live, the more I'm aware how I take. But it was the greatest of pleasures to be a giver. Slowly but surely, I realized the more I cut down walls and gave my soul to the reader, the more I was being true to the craft. Sure, some folks don't like my style, but the reality is the more people who read and appreciate your work, the more who are not going to dig it. In the end, though, you remember the love letters more than the internet comments. This episode is sponsored by Osprey. Osprey and the Climbing Zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home with Osprey here in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado. And to find out more, visit Osprey.com. This episode is also sponsored by Black Diamond. Another longtime sponsor of the climbing zine, Black Diamond is all about climbing, skiing, and mountains. And, of course, the desert. Black Diamond Camelots are an essential ingredient for heading up any splitter. From the new 7 and 8 C4s to the new Z4s, you can never have too many Camelots in the creek. But once your Creek 50 backpack fills up, might as well hand the rest of the rack to your buddy to carry up. To find out more, visit BlackDiamondEquipment.com. I realized over time I had the opportunity to influence people the way Kerouac and company influenced me. Moments in the past when I'd wondered what the purpose of all these lonely days were about suddenly transformed into something important. As long as I would write honestly about my wins and my losses, I was on my life's path, and nothing short of death 
would take that from me. As one gains a reputation for their work, certain things are said about that person. And while I don't have the luxury of being a fly on the wall when people are talking about my work, I've heard some entertaining things. One of my favorites came from a friend, Jonathan, who had a buddy who said, Oh yeah, that guy Luke? The one who was always writing about his girlfriends? And it was true. I had a penchant for freely writing about my dating, and I was a hopeless romantic. Like Willie Nelson singing about the loneliness on the road, I did the same in my stories. Climbers, we often don't want to settle down until later, but like any other human, we want company. Some of my climbing stories probably read like sappy country songs, but I think it resonated with some people. Because everyone gets their heart broken a time or two, it makes us stronger. Can you know love if you never lose it? The more I wrote, the more people reached out to me and told me I inspired them, or I was able to write about things that they had felt too. And the more I wrote, the more people on the internet would tell me I was a total amateur and didn't know what the hell I was doing as a writer. Here's feedback from two different readers on the exact same book, American Climber. One reviewer said, I just finished your book, American Climber. I've never been so indulged in a book. I absolutely loved reading about your story. From growing up in the Midwest, trying to find yourself, to accomplishing the biggest goal of a climber, summiting El Cap. I enjoyed how you expressed yourself and everything you went through in life. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I learned a lot about life through your book. And another reviewer said, this was some of the most tedious, repetitious, immature writing I have ever struggled through. Then the never ending dialogue about relationships. Everyone goes through that, you're a writer. Make it interesting or leave it out. As a climber, the descriptions of the various climbing experiences were average and allowed me to get through the book, but that was it. Compared to other climbing literature, this is below average and worth skipping. I know as humans, we have a tendency to be drawn towards negative feedback, but both the positive feedback and the negative feedback inspired me. Negative reviews and feedback are inevitable, but if I knew I wrote from the heart and believed in the story. Even negative feedback inspired me in a strange way. It lit a fire and the fire kept on a burning. So I just kept on a writing. My arrival to living near the desert came along with a dry spell in the weather. Durango seemed like a tropical paradise compared to Gunnison. I was used to hunkering down in the winter and then escaping to the desert for a few precious hours in the dirt when I could. This was different, just different. I had bouts of fear and doubt in town, wondering where the hell I'd work given that the economy was total shit at the time. If I'd ever meet the woman of my dreams, and if I'd ever make it in this idyllic but pricey town. Fear can be a motivator, but I think everyone needs a break from fear. So in the midst of establishing myself in this new charming town on the edge of the desert and the mountains, I went climbing. My two best friends named Tim were in tow. Two Tent Timmy was visiting from Oregon, and my other best friend named Tim had moved to Durango the very same month that I had. Tim Folks and I were both unemployed. Indian Creek, for a few warm winter days, was the perfect place to be. Tim was in the process of getting clean from the bottle. I'd watched Tim struggle with alcohol for years. And one morning, after a rough night of taking care of him out in the town, I sat him down. I told him I didn't think we could be friends anymore if he continued drinking. He did continue drinking, 
and got into a horrific car accident when he was intoxicated. The cops said it was a miracle he was alive, and they had to use the Jaws of Life device to get him out of the vehicle. Tim's life seemed to happen like this. It was one of several stories I've heard of him using up his nine lives. I felt bad for Tim and knew he wanted to be rid of the demons of alcoholism. Everyone around Tim wanted him to quit too, but that sort of thing has to come from the inside. Changing ain't easy, and most people don't change. Tim was and is special, though. I was rooting for him. I was also mentally prepared for the worst, but he's one of those people that found the inner strength to overcome his addiction. Two-tent Timmy had been my rock. We grew up in Illinois together and attended the same church starting at seven years old. He was always there when I needed him to be, and climbing with him was always sacred. He held the torch of trad climbing high, and every adventure with Tim was a good adventure. He had a gold tooth that shined in the sun. We had all of Indian Creek to ourselves. No one else was in the Super Bowl, which had a blanket of snow covering it. We were freezing cold in the morning, huddling by the fire. But by midday, when we were at the crag, we basked in a solar oven created by the sun on varnished rock. Maybe it was that contrast in the environment that has made this day stand out so much. Snow on the valley floor with a striking blue sky overhead. Or maybe it was just the contrast in my mind state. Worry, worry about what's going to happen in this new stage of life. And then being in the desert and not being worried about anything really, other than staying warm and staying safe. Whatever the reason, this memory shines through like a ray of sunshine in a dark canyon. While Tim and Two Tent warmed up, I roamed the broken tooth wall freely, going on a little hike and basking in this warmth that felt so divine. I took some photos of them from afar and then hiked to the far right side of the cliff to see if I could maybe find some unclimbed cracks. In all my years of climbing in Indian Creek, I'd never put up a new route, but I always wanted to. Sure enough, as I walked around that bend, I found several unclimbed cracks on the far right side of the wall, just enough off the beaten path that no one had gotten around to putting them up. I took pictures of one particular line that looked good and zoomed into the top to see if it had any evidence of anchors. Nothing. I ran back to Two Tent and Tim and excitedly told them about my findings. I asked them if they would be game to give this line a go, and they were. I ran back down to the car to get a bolt kit. I always had a bolt kit stashed away, mostly for replacing bad anchors. Looking at my stash of bolts revealed I didn't have the right size. The bolts I had were made for bomber granite, too small for sandstone. The new line would have to wait. My life started revolving around this routine of getting settled in Durango and then escaping back to the desert. This empty, quiet, wintry desert was a side of Indian Creek I'd never seen before. It was my favorite side. The sky seemed bluer, the rocks redder, and with fewer people around, it felt wilder. We climbed with the place all to ourselves and watched the ravens fly. Soon enough, Two Tent and I returned to that line I wanted to establish. I wrote about the experience in an early issue of the climbing zine. When Two Tent comes back through Durango, it takes absolutely no convincing to venture out to the creek again. What else would we do with our lives? We caravan out west towards our beloved Red Rock Desert in the middle of the week. The Super Bowl campsite is empty again. In the busy season, we're always scrambling to find a site, 
In the deep of winter, I almost hope there are other climbers there for some company. Alas, it's just my best friend and me. Armed with longer bolts for sandstone, I convinced Tutent to check out the unclimbed line on the right side of the broken tooth wall. After a warm-up, we head over to the line, which I consider naming after his gold front tooth, which was the result of a nasty breakdancing accident years ago. I figured the name would be appropriate for the wall. The line starts in somewhat loose rock, with protection in a crack that's about half an inch wide. Footholds crumble off as I climb up and down the rock. Quickly, I resort to aid climbing, as the climb turns a small roof into a flare, the crack just larger than an inch. Two tents settles into the despair of a long belay as I aid through this section, and then a hundred foot long off width that looms above. Suddenly, I'm not excited at all about the possibility of a first ascent, as I have two tents send up all our off width gear on a tagline. There's a reason the pursuit of first ascents has mostly faded at the creek. More often than not, they involve off width, and for the average suitor, a new route takes most of the day, with one person struggling above, and the other in a kind of sufferfest, a long belay. Why do this when you could be climbing perfect splitters, one after one, all day long? I go into a mode of climbing and prayer, as I fit my body in the off width for inches of upward progress. I curse myself for the pursuit as I put my off with skills to the test. Knees on one side of the crack, heels and toes on the other. My arms chicken winged into the crack, my entire body covered with dust from head to toe. Two tent sends up occasional words of encouragement, the only reminder of the positive and optimistic notions I had before starting up. 90 feet up the off with section, I place my last piece of big gear, a green number three big bro. I worm up and finally reach a hand crack, jamming it until I reach the spot to place anchors. Two tent sends up the drill kit. I am weak and not psyched to drill the anchors as the sun is quickly faded. Defeated, I sink in two bolts, repel and clean the gear, leaving a top rope for my partner. He seconds the route in style with the last rays of light for the day. I'm exhausted as we hike down the hill, relieved to be done with climbing for the day. As the heavy pack sinks into my aching body, the campfire and food restore warmth to the soul. While we sit next to the campfire, we work on a plaque for our new route, carving the name in with a drill bit. Though I'd considered naming it Gold Tooth after Timmy's Gold Tooth, I decided the line was just too brutal and haggard to commemorate my best friend in such a way. After my comrade's approval, we name it Snaggletooth. Old Snaggletooth could have been a singular pursuit. After all, it wasn't really that enjoyable in the moment, and the route itself wasn't even really all that good, not compared to its neighbors. But right by Snaggletooth, there were several other unclimbed cracks. And after a few weeks, I remembered what I liked about the experience more than what I didn't like about the experience. I was also moving from climbing on mostly granite to climbing on sandstone. And the climber gets used to a certain medium. Granite often seems like a delicate balance, balancing on tiny edges. Wingate sandstone cracks can be a little more thuggy. All limbs are almost always in the crack. But don't let me bore you with the details. I've just found that once I get really comfortable on one type of rock, I get uncomfortable on another. Years later, I'd lose all my instincts on granite after climbing at the creek so much. Plus, 
getting strong on one type of rock does not necessarily apply to another. I've seen professional climbers who succeed on the Ninja Warrior TV show for big money, unable to send a relatively easy V4 roof crack in Joshua Tree. While little old me, a comparatively less fit climber, could walk up and do that roof crack without overexerting myself. But they bleed all over it and left stumped by the sequence and the technique. That's not a humble brag, or maybe it is. My point is, strength in rock climbing is so specific, and many climbers that are good climbers are only good on certain mediums. More important than that, though, is how we feel comfortable on the rock. And at this point in my career, at the creek, I still wasn't comfortable, not like I was on granite. Ten years in, I was still a relative newbie. I couldn't have been more excited for something to be excited about. Those winter days also tricked us into thinking we had the desert to ourselves, which I guess we did. We just wouldn't for long. But this desert is so big, you can always have it to yourself if you want to. Ten years in, hiking the desert to find new routes became part of the experience, and thus the desert became bigger. Some days I would hike by myself, other days with friends. Tim was always game for hiking. He knew this desert well from all his years working there, and he knew how to move about in this desert. Don't bust the crust, man, is always a rule. Avoid stomping on the cryptobiotic soil as much as possible. Stay in the washes when you can. Know when to look around. The remnants of the ancestral Puebloans are all around, from pictographs and petroglyphs to ruins, moki steps, pieces of pottery, and shards from tools. Those little specks of rock that don't look like they belong in this plateau of sandstone, because, well, they don't. They came from places far away, from trades with other tribes. The miners and the ranchers left their marks as well, and they are the reasons we have the roads we have these days. Their remnants are not as interesting or as romantic, though, but I guess it depends on what narratives you romanticize. I'm sure the ancestral Puebloans live very hard lives out here, It's nearly impossible to imagine what it was like in Indian Creek a thousand years ago. The climate was different. A major river ran through the zone. They grew corn and lived within the rocks where they could. If I could transport back to any area, I know I'd be torn between the 60s in California and the 1060s in the land we now call Indian Creek, just to see how they lived and to see if it was as magical as I've romanticized. Even better than time travel is creating your own life in the manner you'd like to live it, or at least trying to guide your life in that direction. So I made a decision, whether it was conscious or unconscious, that I had to start writing ferociously with discipline and spending as much time in the desert with my friends, trying to do the things that had never been done, while being equally amazed at what happened a thousand years ago. There's nothing new under the sun, that's for sure. Yet there's the thrill of the chase, and then there's the unspeakable. Why you're drawn to what you're drawn to. Why you notice it when you do, even though your steps have perhaps crossed this juncture a hundred times before. How you can find your place, your haven, in a place you once rode off is inhospitable, a wasteland, a stop along the way. And now how that can become home.
that was episode four of season two of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I am, of course, Luke Mihaw. Music for this episode came from Devin Dabney. You can check out more of Devin's work online. Deuce is Hip Hop is his handle on Instagram. He's also on Spotify and some of the other music platforms. Chad Rich is our digital editor and producer. Check that link in your show notes for a discount code to pick up some zines, some books, some merch. Of course, as I always preach, that's the number one way to support us. Signing off from beautiful Durango, Colorado. Thank you.